0: rpn the roddenberry podcast network
1: tuesday night 7 p.m on the west coast 10 p.m on the best coast oh yeah i said it must be time for mission log live i'm ken ray and you well you just say your name here Oh, cool. Good to see you. Uh, John's champion's away today, though. I'm sure if he was here, he'd want to tell you uh, that this is the time that we, your Star Trek pals, invite you, our Star Trek pals, to call in and talk Trek and Trek-related topics. Joining us this week, Dr. Robert Hurt. Uh, Robert is a Star Trek fan, so that's great. But he's got a great job as well and an important job. Uh, yeah, those pictures that you see of things from outer space, a lot of times those pictures come to us as data. And making them make sense to us mere mortals is part of what Robert does. So in a few minutes, we'll be talking to Robert about that. We'll talk to him about his track fandom and how science fiction gets science right and gets it wrong. All sorts of stuff. And uh, yeah, looking forward to that. So here's the thing. Robert and I can talk about that stuff all night long or uh, you can call in with your questions and comments as well. You do that in the usual ways. You click the Zoom meeting or you use the one tap from your smartphone Or you can give us a call, 669-900-6833 is the phone number to call, 669-900-6833. Enter the meeting code on the screen or in the description, then you get to talk to Earl, and then you have to talk to us. We bring interesting people for interesting Trek and Trek-related talk, Um, but it's definitely more interesting when you play along. So please take advantage of one of those ways and give us a call. Uh, This is also the part where John would say hello to everybody watching live on Facebook. Unfortunately, comments have not been working for me on Facebook for iPad for a few weeks. So I'm going to just, you know, some names that I hear him say a lot of times. Scott, is Scott there? Chuck, maybe? Uh, Donna, Steve, I'm guessing here. I don't know who's there now, but uh, for everybody who is there, thank you very much. Whether you're watching on Facebook live or later, watching on YouTube live or later, or catching the audio podcast later or later. Thank you very much for joining us. We are happy to have you along. There is one other favor that I would ask. uh, Wherever you find the show, uh, please hit like. Please hit share because you do that, and that boosts the signal. And we all know how painful an unboosted signal can be. Um, We've got normal show stuff coming up in just a moment, but this week was a rough week for Trek fans. Uh, Three Star Trek actors passed away this week. Jack Donner and Sid Haig both had parts on the original series. Uh, Jack was on the Enterprise incident, and Sid was on Return of the Archons. It's sad when you lose anybody, and I mean those gentlemen, no disrespect, but um, uh, Trek took a bigger loss this week when Aaron Eisenberg, uh, Nog from Deep Space Nine, uh, died suddenly this past Saturday. I was lucky enough to meet Aaron three times, I met him at a tiny convention in Albany a few years ago. Um, I met him when he was on this show back in May. And I met him just last month uh, at STLV. And and so much energy and so kind. Because I'll tell you honestly, when I met him in Albany, I hadn't started watching Deep Space Nine yet. I was peripherally aware of who he was. Um, Not overly aware of Nog's character. I mean, I could name him if I saw him in a picture, but otherwise that was it. And uh, just an incredibly kind guy every single time that we talked and every single time that we met. Um, also incredibly talented on Deep Space Nine, and I know he was an inspiration to you know countless people through his work as Nog, uh, especially as you know DS Nine progresses from where uh, we're currently in our rewatch. John and I had a few conversations Saturday night about what a ripoff mortality is, uh, especially when it makes its presence known in, uh, in such a sudden and honestly ugly way so uh, we said on twitter that we were glad for the times that we had met and we were and we said that we were sorry that those times were over and we are um if you want to offer brief thoughts tonight's on Aaron's passing uh, uh, feel free in the meantime though we do have you know show type stuff that we do want to do uh so we're gonna do a regular show um but I know our, our thoughts are with Aaron and his family. 669-900-6833 is the phone number to call for that regular show type thing. 669-900-6833. Or you can use the one tap from your smartphone or you know do the stuff on Facebook. I assume there's still a Facebook. I honestly can't see it. Uh, this is the part of the show where we do the poll. Last week, we asked the question, how do you like your reality, augmented or virtual uh, 17% of you said augmented, 83% of you were wrong. I'm sorry, that's horrible of me to say. I apologize. I personally am a huge fan of augmented reality because I think that's going like, to really affect uh, our day-to-day more readily than virtual reality does. But, you know, I, I, I certainly do want to do the holodeck thing. So uh, 17% of you said uh, augmented reality, 83% said virtual reality, And that is how that game was played last week. Uh, This week, the question is, oh, and I think I closed Facebook. This week, the question is, uh, how important is scientific accuracy in sci-fi to you? Uh, The two choices are very important and not very important. And the last time I checked it right before the show started, it was pretty evenly split. Uh, 48% said it was very important. 52% said not very important. I can certainly see making a case for both of those, and we may actually put that question to tonight's guest, who will be joining us now. Um, as tends to be our way, we've tied the poll question that we have uh, to our guest this evening. Dr. Robert Hurt is an astronomer, an astrophysicist, if you prefer. Yes, it is a made-up title, but as store would say, all titles are made up. Robert, thank you very much for joining us this evening.
0: Oh oh were you talking to me I sorry I was off in my my virtual <laughs> explorations of <Nice>. the universe
1: <laughs> nice. what was my Not avatar was like was I trying. like a was I a, was like a tardigrade or was like a, like a like a was I like thor what was
0: Oh, you were not in my world at all, Ken.
1: Sorry. Oh, okay, that's no, that's it was <laughs> that's fine. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us tonight. First of all, I know I gave like the most rudimentary description of what it is you do uh, for people who don't know, or or you know, to give people a clearer idea than what I said. Uh, what is your title exactly, and and what is it like? What of what I said was correct? What <laughs> is it that you, that you do?
0: actually? I honestly you pretty much nailed it. Uh, I'm, um, I'm an astronomer and, um, uh, I've been calling myself a visualization scientist for many years until, uh, my colleague who does a similar, uh, uh, position at, um, the Space Telescope Science Institute dubbed the term astrophysicist. And it, it really is, as, as you said, it's, um, working with, the data to try to tell the visual side of the stories, the science that we we share for education and uh, communication purposes. And, and my job not only uh, covers say when we have data and trying to make that, you know, visible and comprehensible. uh, I spent a lot of time, uh, last 16 years now working on NASA's Spitzer space telescope project, the uh, infrared cousin to the Hubble. And, uh, you know, it observes outside of the visible spectrum of light. So we, uh, you know, we, ha- we take this data of imagery that the eye couldn't see, and we map that back into red, green, and blue colors so that we we sort of translate the infrared color, which you can't see, into visible light colors you can't see. And through that, sort of try to reveal the um, process of star formation, of um, uh, you know, tracing at the locations of distant galaxies at the edge of the observable universe. But in cases then when we don't have data to... Um, that's self-explanatory. Uh, I also do uh, illustrations and um, artwork to try to visually tell the things that we can't show in the data directly. And uh, you know, we work with the media team and the communications team for the press releases. Uh, I've really had an incredible good fortune to work on on so many of NASA's uh, projects, including things like the Kepler space telescope. So uh, my uh, my colleague Tim Pyle and I have gotten to do most of the exoplanet visualizations you've seen for uh, Kepler. Uh, the Spitzer project has actually had a lot of great exoplanet science over the last few years. So we've had a chance to work on all of those. But yeah, I'm, I, I basically, my job is to tell science stories to people, but tell it in a visual way.
1: So then uh, the question about uh, science and science fiction is right up your alley. And I do want to get to that in a bit. Can we go at, uh, forgive me, I don't, and well, I don't want to sound argumentative. I'm not being argumentative, but here's the thing. The 78, 79, I think one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, satellites was out past Jupiter, I want to say, or maybe it was Saturn. I was a kid. I was a young kid. But I remember I'm watching Voyager today. Well, OK, OK. But I'm watching like today or Good Morning America or something like that. And, and I love that we were this cool about science back then. And like they were seriously holding, waiting for an image to be sent back when you tell me what you're telling me I'm a little bit confused then like what of what I see when I see like here is a picture that NASA released what of what I see is a picture that something has actually taken and sent back to us versus you know well here here's here's a bunch of data that we've turned into something that you're going to understand
0: i mean it's it's all kind of the same thing now, in the case of the Voyager missions, it was a very real time endeavor, and uh you know particularly when those encounters occurred, data was coming down in real time and was basically being you know released to the media almost as soon as it was visible i I remember my freshman year in college at Chapel Hill. I went to the local planetarium uh, while Voyager was making its pass by I think it was mm, Uranus, maybe. And we were getting live feeds as, as live as it was, you know, people, hundreds of people had collected uh, in and outside the planetarium as to, to, to chance to see this as it, it comes down. Now, when you go to missions like the Spitzer Space Telescope or Hubble, you're actually working with a facility that is observing constantly and it's storing, you know, huge quantities of data on its onboard systems, and then periodically downlinking that to Earth. That has to then go through a uh, uh, you know a process of uh, data processing and and the you know, assembly and calibration and so there's a lot of stuff that happens over the course of days or weeks before that data that then actually ends up you know going to the researchers who requested those particular observations and so um, there's very little like real time like oh and here it is hot off the telescope because there's a lot of software process that has to go on before I even say we'll start my job which is then taking the data and, you know, choosing the right exposure, you know, how that, you, know, you know, we're working with, you know, intrinsically high dynamic range images. So we sort of have to choose like, you know, how bright, how, uh, how dark, how much contrast do I want to bring out in the image? Um, uh, and then building up the, which channels am I pulling in to combine together into different planes, right? Uh, any observation from the telescopes intrinsically like a, a one channel grayscale image, but you make a color picture by taking several grayscale images and, mapping them to different colors, and then you produce the color image in the process. I mean, you know, every digital camera use essentially is taking a red picture and a green picture and a blue picture, and that goes together to make the color. Right. Image see, I just happen to have a lot more of the electromagnetic spectrum to draw from when I'm when I'm pulling my images together to make the final color image.
1: So here's the thing, and I'm going to sound, and Lou, by the way, I know that we have a caller on the line. Lou, I'm going to get to you in just a moment, but I think it, to break up this chain of questions would be kind of weird. So hang tight. I'm going to get to you in just a second. Um, here, Here's the question that I have, and, and I think this is a bigger philosophical uh, question, maybe even than a science question, but we now seem to be in a time where people are willing to debate the roundness of the planet on which we live. And certainly there are a number of people who are willing to debate uh, you know, climate change at this point, or just say, no, that's not true. Maybe not even debate it. Just say, nah, you're just making stuff up. So when you explain to somebody what you do, does anybody go, well, you're a man of science. So obviously what you're telling me is spot on. Or, or are people like, hang on a second. So you're telling me that the things I've seen, I haven't seen. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean? no. It, go it, ahead.
0: It's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, what's weird is astronomy, largely is a science that has escaped most of the the controversialization of science i think uh not that there aren't certainly controversial things that occur on you know where we build telescopes and things but there um i very seldom talk to people who just are saying oh well that's all made up right but what i do end up engaging with people like sometimes I'm just sitting in a plane talking to somebody. And when they find out I'm a scientist and I talk a little about the astronomy, then they start rolling out other questions about, well, what about climate science or something? And so I, I will go through, I've, I've had more than one opportunity, like on an airplane where I'm just sitting next to someone for a couple hours to actually kind of walk them through the science process to see it's like, it isn't just that what you see reported as news. Is something really, really disconnected from the actual process of science and that you're only getting a, a little shade of a representation of that. And in fact, it's one that ends up being very biased by what the media considers interesting or pressworthy. For instance, you know, in, in the, in the science journals, you have images that are, um, uh, sorry, uh, you have articles that are published and then are commented on, other people do continuing research, sometimes things are disproven or found, you know flaws are found in the original analysis, and the whole body of work carries you forward. And then you either converge on, yes, that was the right idea, or things diverge, you get other ideas. But in the media, when you say chocolate improves your health, that's a headline and you run it. But six months later, when someone says, yeah, that study actually had a statistical error in how they processed it, and it wasn't right, The media never retracts it and then or or doesn't tell that story and then some years later someone else find has a different story that maybe comes comes the opposite conclusion and then they're going oh wait well now they say one thing now they say the other but because of the way things get distilled down to be really super simple when you're doing a news story they you end up seeing what feels like a very disjoint and chaotic process because you're not actually seeing the process you're only seeing the little bits and pieces people have picked and chosen to put out into the news stories. Um, you know, in, in astronomy, like I said, it, we haven't gotten hit by that level of controversies. I'm sure there are people who would object to the idea that I'm, you know, I can observe data from a galaxy that's, you know, billions of light years away. You know, if the universe is clearly 6,000 years old or whatever, you know, by whatever system they're, they're, uh, they're backing. Right. But, um, but what I, I like to think astronomy, because it's lack of controversy on so many levels and the sheer level of fascination people have with it. I like to think of it the gateway science, <laughs> you know, I can bring somebody in and show them how the process of science, describe them how the scientific process works in something like astronomy, which is non-threatening. And then once you start to understand that process and saying that you're not already in a camp and then you're kind of backed up against the wall, then you can actually start to see, oh. I am starting to see now how I'm not getting the whole story when I just read a few newspaper articles on biotech or climate science or or whatever. Right. In a lot of ways it can astronomy can function to science and in, in some of the same ways I think that science fiction can function relative to science as well, right? The uh, idea of um trying to get out and inspiring people with, you know, just a few tidbits, draw them in, make them curious so that they want to dive deeper into it and uh and with you know astronomy people who might not be inclined to want to get into technicalities of science if you interest them enough in how we're exploring other planets around other stars and draw them in enough to engage with the stories we're trying to tell and and the explanations of how the process works then that becomes as you learn more about science you inevitably start to see that oh this is a process we can repeat in any endeavor of study
1: 669 six, nine, is the phone number to call, 669 six, nine, Or you can use the one tap from your smartphone or if you're on Facebook, uh, click the links there, uh, enter the meeting code. Uh, you'll be talking to Earl and uh, then you'll be talking to us. Listen, I know John is always watching the comments and saying, hey, somebody said something great. I seriously don't have Facebook up right now. So if you have a question or a comment that you want to get on, get on. 669 900 or all the other things I said a moment ago. Uh, Lou has been very patient. I appreciate your patience, Lou. Uh, what's on your mind tonight?
2: I failed science in uh, in college, and I am um, I'm just I'm just fascinated. First of all, I'm glad that you're actually able to see me. At least I hope you are. Yes. Uh, can you can you uh, can you see the uh, the trivia? It says
1: Trek trivia, and that's all I can make out, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, st- oh starring Lou okay <laughs> very nice all right cool
2: and and we did do a couple of shows in in Buffalo just uh, oh. Oh, the cool. long time ago yeah uh, as you know I've been following you guys since the well I guess since uh, since you started with uh, with toss
1: in oh, okay okay
2: 2014, I caught up in that and uh, um, I'm, i i i, I I feel like I should have been pushed back in line. I think Earl was taking, uh, taking uh, pity on me because, as you know, I've tried to get through to you for like five weeks in a row with, uh, right. with no success. I'm still amazed that you're able to see and hear me right now. Um, yeah. I'm, um, I just wanted to say to keep up the good work. I, I wanted to say hi to John. What did he yeah. do? Where did he get, is he under arrest again?
1: He is actually, so John has this like big historical week going on. He is off celebrating the hundredth anniversary of a place that he likes to go weekly. And I cannot tell you how hard this ticket was to get. Like you can't get a ticket. Basically, if you're around enough, they're like, hey, listen, we're doing this thing. Come on by. Except he's around enough that they told him six months ago. And so that all happened tonight. And then he's got some other thing he's going to. That's like the 85th anniversary of something else. He was born in the wrong time, but he really he, likes old things. Yeah, he re- well, he likes he likes things with a certain panache, a certain je ne sais quoi. He likes things, although less French. Uh, he likes, uh, yeah, seriously. I think he'd have been, he'd have turned up well in a Dashiell Hammett novel. I'm pretty certain. Although wow. like somebody that somebody bad was happening to, I don't. He wouldn't be Dashiell, or, uh, or like he wouldn't be Sam Spade or anything like that. <laughs> But he will be listening, Lou, and he will definitely he will definitely get your hello.
2: And I will be back, and I will be still submitting uh trivia answers when I when I get them, even though they're two years old. I'm um, mm-hmm. I'm hoping and I do apologize to, to Dr. Hurt for not having uh something germane or relevant to add. All I can say is that I'm trying to learn from you and I as I learn from John and Ken every week, and I think um, I, I feel like I'm in the um The political debates, and I want to, I want to give up my time so somebody else can contribute more. But I'll be back.
1: Excellent. That that
2: wasn't meant as a threat, but, but you know what I mean.
1: (laughs) Well, try not waving your finger at me next time, then, because it'll seem less threatening.
0: (laughs) Well, Uh, maybe 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 you'll get a passing grade tonight because you know at least
2: engaged. So. (laughs) I'm trying, man. I'm trying. Thank you very much, doctor.
1: Thank you, you, Lou. Thank you for calling in, man. Six six nine nine hundred six eight three three is the phone number to call. Six six nine nine hundred six eight three three, or you can use the one tap from your smartphone, or uh, if you're on Facebook, uh, follow the instructions right there. Hey, really quickly, Robert, because uh, because Lou actually said he's learning from you, and uh, one of the things that we're horrible about is we run out of time and we forget to tell people other things that people are doing. You sure. actually, you actually have a thing that you, uh, that you do online that people do want to learn from you, you know, as it goes, not just in this, you know, one hour spurt every three years. <laughs> what would be the, uh, what would be the place for people to check out?
0: It's true. Yeah. Well, um, uh, a couple of things I'll mention. I actually do a monthly science, uh, uh, podcast for, um, uh, mission, not mission log. Sorry. That's the other one. Uh, uh priority one, <laughs> the one that yeah. they do before you. Uh, right. yeah. On the priority one podcast, I do an astrometry support every month and I do a, you know, five, six minute, uh, uh summary, uh, description of one of the uh, kind of coolest things of the month that comes out. Uh, I think I'll be doing one for next week's show. Um, and in the um, aside from the you know just the work I do behind the scenes in Spitzer, one of the projects that we do for science communications at um, at Caltech is a, a video project called Universe Unplugged, where we make uh, hopefully fun science videos, uh, working with celebrities to uh, give very uh, entertaining ways to get at real science ideas. So we've actually, um, we actually have uh, been doing this for many years with, uh, association from the Spitzer project. And we've worked with a number of uh, people like George Decay. Uh, on the current run of Universe Unplugged Videos, we actually have a couple with Will Wheaton. Uh, attached to a brain visualizer where we learn about the lives and death of stars. Uh, he's, uh, he's with uh, Jerrica Hinton from, uh, Grey's Anatomy for that. And the uh, ones that, uh, I have got a chance to write and direct recently, uh, stars, uh, Cass Anbar and Kara G from The Expanse. Uh, we have, uh, two episodes out of a series we call The Habitable Zone, where we follow a couple space travelers who are going from one planetary system to another, looking for like another earth, uh, another earth-like world and discovering that just being in the habitable zone of the star is not nearly enough to be habitable. <laughs> and so, uh, um, so these are just done. We, we, you know, we frame these like, uh, uh, fun sci-fi stories, but where we've worked very hard to get all the science as right as we can. Uh, you know, which becomes a marked difference from things like, you know Ad Astra, which I saw this weekend. <laughs>
1: Hmm. You see, okay, so you're leading to, uh, well, normally we actually start with people's Trek fandom, but uh, uh, we didn't start there. So now let's go to that. Uh, were you more science before Trek, more Trek before science? Did the two things hit concurrently? How does your how does how does Trek enter your life, and how does it stay so strong?
0: Trek entered my life at my earliest possible memories. I'm I'm old enough to have watched uh, the original series when I was at the beginnings of my ability to form memories (laughs) my dad watched it all with me and i was i grew up never not knowing what the stories of all the star trek episodes were for the original show so for me the animated series was the first new trick i ever got to see that i like actually got to remember and it was very very important and so i've been i've been in since the beginning but it's absolutely true I'm, i'm one of the many many people and many people certainly in astronomy who by watching the original series from such a young age, I was just fascinated with the universe and I wanted to know the reality of what was going on out there. And so it, uh, Star Trek provided the engagement and the inspiration and then that just absolutely had me devouring everything that I could uh, find on the actual topics. I spent most of my professional career actually trying not to be an astronomer because I didn't think it was a very practical job. (laughs) But uh, through just a series of discovering that I don't want to be a chemist. I don't want to be a a, a plasma physicist. I ended up back in the thing that actually most interested me. And now I get to try to (laughs) share it with other people too.
1: So, um, uh, stupid, geeky question, but in Star Trek Generations, how excited were you to see stellar cartography? I-, I wondered, like the whole time, that's the first movie that you get from Next Gen. And the whole time I'm like, well, first of all, that should just be a holodeck. But second, where has that been for the past seven years of my life?
0: Stellar cartography was was beautiful and splendid, and yes, every uh, I was with more than one astronomer when I saw that, and we, we all squeed in delight because it's like, oh yeah, that's what I want to be able to use when I'm I'm you know looking at my data and seeing it in context in the sky. So 3D model of the the the, the galaxy that we get to pass through, yeah. um, and it's little tidbits like that I think that I think are the most delightful for me because those are like these visual embodiments of how cool science is. And I love that Trek has always tried to do that. You know, sometimes more than others. But uh, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, interestingly, I think one of the things that actually disappointed me greatly when Next Generation came out is that they demoted the idea of science in it by removing the science officer from the show. Spock mm. was a big deal to me. That the second in command of the ship, his primary function was understanding science. And in this narrative desire to split that role up amongst many people, they actually deleted any reference to science as being explicitly important. The only people who were blue were a counselor and a medical doctor, but nobody embodied science except for incidental characters that would come on here and there, you know, wearing the blue. So, in fact, one of the things that made me really happy when DS9 came on was. Zia Dax returned to that tradition of science is explicitly important, and you have someone who that is their um, their domain in the show, and it's, you know been you know perpetuated in the Star Trek since then.
1: That's really interesting because it never occurred to me that. And that that goes into like a really incredibly geeky. Like, if we were doing a role playing game thing, of like, does your second in command was he second in command because he was the science guy, or was he second in command because he was second in command and he also happened to be science? Because we didn't really spend any time on you know the Reliant or or any other yeah. uh, ship that ran around around that time. Uh, to your point, actually, Earl's been kind enough to pop a question in from uh, Facebook into our chat. Uh, CJ wants to know how accurate the uh, the space representations in Star Trek are.
0: So here, let me let me ask you a question. If you had to pick a series of Star Trek as the most accurate, just just as a guess, which of all the series would you pick is probably the one that did it the best, the most accurately.
1: Uh, visually or scientifically.
0: <laughs> that visually represented closest to accurate.
1: I'm going to say the original series because there was almost nothing on screen and there's almost nothing in space.
0: Bingo. And the other thing that the original series did that was actually really great, and no one ever did it after that. (laughs) And I actually knew this as a kid, and I thought this was uh, impressive. They actually showed that stars weren't all the same color. Every other science fiction show you have ever seen shows stars as uniform white dots in a sky. In Star Wars, they tend to be very, very flat and uniform. Uh, Other shows, you get a little more varying in brightness. In the original series of Star Trek, You saw red stars, and you saw white stars, and there might have even been a few blue stars mixed in. And that's the only Star Trek that has actually gotten it correct.
1: That's fascinating. Although, I got to say, I mean nobody any offense. Do you think that was because they were striving for scientific accuracy, or is it because they were trying to sell color TVs?
0: You know, it might have been a little of the two, but they could have, for instance, greatly over-exaggerated the colors of the stars to make Mm. them look vivid. But in fact, they... I, I actually believe that the reason it looked that way is that people looked at color pictures that had been taken. This sky kind of said, Oh, yeah, okay, make it look like that. A few red things mixed in. You know, uh, uh, we know stars like Betelgeuse look red to the naked eye. Uh, uh, the stars like Rigel have a slight bluish tint uh, to it. Yeah, most of the stars are just kind of whitish. So, yeah, I, I always thought that was so fascinating that <laughs> Star Trek got it right over 50 years ago, and no one has gotten it right since. Including all other manifestations of Star Trek. And then as far as nebulas go, nebulas also are, they're just faint. They're, um, you know, if you you look at a distant nebula and it looks very faint in the sky, if you fly right up next to it, now it is a big, just as faint thing in the sky. It doesn't get any brighter because you get close to it. It just gets bigger.
1: (laughs) Right, right. That's... Uh, That is also fast. Hang on one second. Uh, I want to remind people 669-900-6833 is the phone number to call 669-900-6833, or you can use the one top of your smartphone, or if you're on Facebook watching right now, uh, follow the instructions there, talk to Earl, and then talk to us because uh, we would love to hear from you. Really quickly, uh, we're shifting things around a tiny bit this week. Uh, Normally, I say what's coming up for people involved in the Roddenberry Podcast Network at the top of the show, but uh, we're at the bottom now. We're going to do that here. Uh, not anything going on for me and John currently as far as going to any sort of... I mean, you know, John's gallivanting because that's his way. Uh, but, but there is a Comic-Con coming up in New York. I want to say it's in the first week of October, which would make it in the next week or two. I don't know the exact dates on it. But while the Roddenberry Podcast Network is not going to be represented, and while, unfortunately, Mission Log is not going to be there, a couple of uh, representatives from a couple of our shows are... So I believe it is Sue Kissenweather from Women at Warp who's going to be uh, at New York Comic-Con. I have not heard that she's doing 20 panels. I assume she'll be doing at least 10 because that tends to be one of the things that she does. But she'll be there. So follow Women at Warp on Twitter, which is Women at Warp uh, at Women at Warp or Twitter.com slash Women at Warp. And then Elijah from Priority One, you heard, uh, you'd heard Dr. Robert mention just a moment ago that Elijah, well, that uh, Priority One, another show on the network, uh, Elijah's actually going to be there as well. And you can follow his antics at Priority One Pod is who they are on Twitter. Um, don't know what he's up to exactly, although I do know that last year he ended up uh, part of a couple of events around Comic-Con. So, uh, you know, keep track of both of them, uh, either Women at Warp on Twitter or Priority One Pod on Twitter. And, uh, you know, uh, seek them out and say, hey, and tell them you heard about it right here because they'll care. 669 is the phone number to call. 669 Or you can use the one-top your smartphone. Or if you're on Facebook, uh, you can go ahead and, uh, and, and follow the instructions there. Uh, Another friend of ours. uh, I see, Earl. You're 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 just being too nice to the people on Facebook who aren't calling in, but it's okay. Uh, John Cooley, Cooley, it's my John Champion invitation. Uh, He wants to know, uh, Doctor Hurt, how can Star Trek better depict the enormity of the galaxy while balancing the storytelling need to get us back and forth quickly.
0: I guess, you know, that, that's always kind of what it comes down to, right, is how, how do you be accurate, but also tell a story that flows and you get done in, in 40 minutes? In general, I would say Star Trek probably has done it better than most. And I think for me, the answer is simply, you know, make up the magic you need to get you to move faster than is possible between two points. And I would say the only thing that maybe Star Trek needs to do a better job of than that is to be consistent with it you know in in principle, like space is really big, and if you, your warp drive isn't working, then you can't get anywhere you can't there will be no nearby planet you can land on uh right it's gonna take if you could travel at the speed of light, it will be you know years to get to the next planet and if you don't have warp drive, you probably can't travel at the speed of light anyway uh and it's so, and so Star Trek can be a little sloppy sometimes like uh oh, the warp drive's down, oh well, fortunately, there's a planet over here we'll be there in three hours it's like then you were basically, you were already orbiting the planet when your orb drive broke down. That's, they, they, it, narrative demands, I think, so often do make everything feel so close together. So uh, something I notice a lot watching like the Marvel movies, like the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, somehow in those movies, space feels very small to me. You know, everything, everything is like right next to everything else. And uh, you, you lose a sense of that, that, that vastness but um i I don't know do you do you think like does does space feel big to you in star trek
1: (laughs) well in star trek no i mean the one thing that john and i have always had to uh had to come to on mission log is i'm not assuming that what happened last week on star trek happened last week to kirk and spock i have no idea how long (laughs) it was you know between last week's episode and this week's episode same thing with uh, um um Well, TNG, basically same. even with the, even with Deep Space Nine, I think watching Deep Space Nine the other day, they talked about something that happened months ago, even though it was only like two episodes, I think, apart. So I think we sort of get in the habit of thinking, well, this is happening weekly. So this is happening so quickly. Um, I think probably Star Trek did that pretty well by saying, we're orbiting a planet, (laughs) right? And so that's it. (laughs) Who knows how long it took them to get there and, and all that. Um... As far as the Marvel stuff, those are just those are just you know those are bubble gum, which I'm which I'm happy to chew. I've been chewing bubble gum my whole life, and I'll keep doing oh. it. If they want to make a twenty dollars Guardians of the Galaxy five in a few years, I'll probably be like, yeah, feels like a lot, <laughs> but, but I know I'm going to enjoy it.
0: I mean, it, it's kind of funny when you think about like what Star Trek originally did to convey vast distances. You know, you showed the warp drive running, you'd see the stars going past the ship, except that. If you actually stop and think about it and you run the numbers, if those are actually stars moving past the ship, then it would take an hour to get out to the edge of the galaxy because mm. the stars are going really fast. Well, you consider, you know, the nearest star is four light years away. If you travel from Earth to Alpha Centauri, you won't see like any, barely, you'll see like a slight little bit of motion over the course, how long does it take to go to Alpha Centauri? And uh, you know, it takes at least an hour, I think, right, on the enterprise going at high warp. Yeah, that would be like, you'd be looking at static stars. And if you like, <laughs> if you put little fiducial markers, you might see some of the nearby stars slid a little bit. But then, so what they show to the idea that they're going fast actually shows them going way, way too fast. And then it, the other place, I guess it sort of breaks down is then when you say, well, okay, let's come up with a formula for what warp drive is. And I remember as a kid, I'd read like the, the speed is the cube of the warp factor. Except when you do those numbers, then you get to the other side of the galaxy incorrectly. You know, it, it, it breaks down the other story plot points of how long does it take to get to the Andromeda galaxy or, or, or things like that. So there's, there's so much hand waviness of we want to establish that there is it takes a certain amount of time to move here and here narratively, we want some place to be inaccessibly far. But because those ideas come after you start to make up the, 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 the technology that does it, you don't really have good rules to make anything kind of make sense. Uh, I think when it's handled best is when someone comes in and maybe has the time to when they're writing a novel, and they actually say, Okay, here are my narrative problems you figure all of that out in advance and then you come up with your your technology and you know how that fits in the framework of the science do, and then you can actually say well this is what these you know warpy warpy factors do you know and you can actually be right. more consistent but because star trek gets written by different people at different times with different narrative uh, uh structures it ends up being really hard to kind of retcon like what would be the rationalization of of how that all works and of course ultimately scientifically right it's all like beyond possibility by anything that we know now. And so uh, you know, at best you can hope for consistency in what you're doing, but it's hard to do that in a highly shared medium that's been written by hundreds of people over, you know, decades.
1: Well, that goes back to what you said a moment ago though. Invent the magic that's going to work for you. The only problem is you need to make sure that everybody stays on that page, which yeah. honestly kind of goes to the poll question, which I said I was going to ask you specifically, how important is the science part? in science fiction. I mean, you as a scientist, do you watch, you know, an episode of Star Trek where they get the science wrong and you're just like, ah, they got the science all wrong. I can't even because like, look, I, I used to work in a radio station and you walk into a radio station when the DJ is about to you know, say something, you can't hear anything in that room because he's flipped that switch. There's no music anymore. It's all going through his headphones. It sounds like he's talking to nobody when he's responding to somebody on the phone. But on TV, they don't want to put headphones on. They want everybody else to be able to hear. It's not realistic. But I still love news radio. I still love, you know, I still love the movie talk radio. I still love. uh, I'm I'm blanking on the other ones now. But I mean, that's that's like a thing that I knew intimately that I just had to let go if I was going to enjoy it. When you watch any, like like you said, Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean that can't be the most unrealistic thing to you in Guardians of the Galaxy because they have a talking <laughs> raccoon. Are you oh, able to? Well, I do totally
0: accept the talking raccoon. Yeah, it's well, I, I don't that. care about that science. Yeah, that's, that's true. Patrice gets upset when they mess up the biology. I I just worry about the astronomy. The in physics. fairness,
1: he had been augmented. But I mean, yeah. so, I mean, so that, so that's the question. Then I mean, you watch something like. At Astra or Gravity or or Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever. I mean, are you okay letting the siren science, or lack thereof, serve the narrative, or are you like, well, you could have done it right?
0: It that answer has almost as many answers as there are shows I've seen, and uh, you know, because we all come in with what our what our what our pet issues are, and you know, I have a few. For me, the issues come down to things like could you have just gotten it right and still told the same story but just caring enough to change a few lines of dialogue it could have actually been not misrepresenting the way things are that's the kind of stuff that really gets under my skin because that's actually more of a like a disinterest of like yeah it's science fiction we don't have to care about anything and that's actually kind of the opposite of of what science fiction kind of represents right you you actually because you're doing so many fantastic things, and some level narratively, I think it's far more important to not just have it go crazy all the time. You have to you want to fit within you wanna feel that there are rules, even if those rules are made up. Um so on something like Star Trek where you just go completely wild things, giant floaty balls of glowy red stuff that's pulsating that has the accumulated knowledge of ten billion years. <laughs> okay, fine. I like fine. I'm I'll sure. roll with that.
1: Why not? Yeah.
0: But, um, but, uh, like, I mean, at Astra, I saw that this weekend and that was a movie I found fundamentally frustrating because it basically it went visually, it tried very hard to have everything grounded and super realistic. The look of the suits, everything was like amazingly meticulously done and literally every single thing that happened. In a, from a space travel point of view, was completely and utterly nonsensical and wrong. None of it. It was just all wrong. Down to like, like simple things like uh, if you are coasting in space, you are weightless. Now, this is something that most sci-fi ignores and they invent artificial gravity because it's really hard to film in weightlessness. So They just say, hey, we're, we got gravity all the time, even when we shouldn't. But if you actually have your rockets firing and you're accelerating, you actually get the equivalent of gravity then in Ad Astra, they show the rockets firing on the ships in every single scene, and in every single scene they are weightless and in fact, the only time they hit a bulkhead is when they turn the rockets off like no that's exactly opposite it's a, like just it's just wrong
1: right. Um, all right so let no. me ask you, let me ask you a question then, and this sort of goes to where we are in the state of science with Star Trek today as well. At Astra um, may be getting the science wrong, but it takes place in outer space and it has Brad Pitt. <laughs> Star, Trek, Star Trek today may not be getting the science as right as maybe even TOS did back in 1960, you know, 66 through 69. But there are more people who are able to watch it now and they're you know, sort of more exciting things. They're also a wider group of people represented on Discovery, say. Yeah. The fact that they're getting the science wrong, but that they're getting, you know, either putting somebody... Kenneth Branagh used to cast, like, Keanu Reeves in his movies. And it wasn't because Keanu Reeves was a great Shakespearean um, actor, but it was because people would go to see a Keanu Reeves movie, right? Mm -hmm. Even if the science isn't being served as well, is there still... Is, is science still getting through, I guess is the question. Even if they're getting it wrong, are they still are they still going to light some fire in some kid's mind someplace who's going to go, man, I want to hit a bulkhead when they turn off the rockets?
0: Well, I mean, th- this comes back to my comment about the original series and uh, seeing Spock in his blue uniform at, at a position of authority and how much that affected my view of science growing up. Discovery, you know, you have Burnham you have um, Saru, you have uh, Stamets, all in science's blue or science's silver, I guess, right? Right. Science is, you know, there, there's a lot of made up stuff in it. But the idea that science motivates what they're doing, science is not the enemy. Science is the methodology by which they approach and they solve their problems. That is the more important element, the, the, the mythology, the, the, the representing what science represents in society, that they are getting very right. And something I, I deeply appreciate. You know, I mean, I'm you know, as, a, as, a, as a gay astronomer scientist who grew up closeted until like my mid 30s, because I had no role models to say, hey, you know, there's someone like me out there I, that I, I don't have to pretend I'm not something I'm not to do the things that I want to do just seeing someone like Stamets on Star Trek after, you know, it's like 50 freaking years. We finally, you know, out time. Right. It's it's amazing and powerful. And that, you know, there, there will be kids that grow up and, and see people like them or, or just people who are so different representing, like, you know, it, it's all there for you to do. I think that's what discovery has actually done. So very, very well, even if, you know, the details of, the science are a little wrong and because discovery is set so far in the future. And it is, there's a, it's more fantastical in some ways that bothers me a lot less than a movie that tries to be very, very grounded, but then just creates piles of misconceptions that people think by watching it, they'll say, Oh, wow, this must be what space travel is really like. We can fly to the Mars in in, in 16 days. And it's like, no, this is all wrong and uh, uh th- and it didn't need to be even the narrative it you could have done exactly the same story he wanted to tell and just changed like a few lines of dialogue and changed a couple of visual effects shots. and it could have been good and it wouldn't have misrepresented things but then it actually creates all of these misconceptions and then we have to go as an educator and as a communicator one of the things we have to always fight against is people come in with like these vast misconceptions about how physics works how space travel works and you have to like find a way to break all of that down before you can then actually start to help people understand how it really works so it just makes their job tries twice as difficult
1: right and uh, then you have to do it without totally disappointing them and having to just walk away and go oh man science is monk. Sorry, yeah, yeah. that's a guess on my part. Hey, uh, I'm going to give out the number again, yeah. even though people are just going to keep giving Earl questions, and he's going to keep giving them to us. Uh, 669-900-6833 is the phone number to call. 669-900-6833. Or you can use the one tap from your smartphone. Or if you're on Facebook. If you're on Facebook, you're almost here. Uh, look, I'm not saying. I'm just saying. You can click all those things and, uh, and get in touch with us. Or, you know, I could ask the questions like the one that Earl has popped in. Uh, for example, uh, Casey wants to know, uh, what are your thoughts when our hero ship is the only ship in a sector, of quadrant, etc.? Given the vastness of space and the finite number of star uh, fleet ships, uh, does this make sense to you?
0: <laughs> I, I think that's where they get. A, this is where they're not providing all the geeky details that we want to know. It gives them the uh, ambiguity to make it the way we want. So I don't actually know how many Starfleet ships are operating at any given point in, in the show. I know how many, say, got destroyed in the Dominion War in DS9 at various points because they mentioned how many ships they lost, you know, so so you get a sense. But, you know, since they don't tell you how many ships there are, and we know space, you know, the Federation covers big, you know, you can certainly imagine having things distributed very uh, sparsely in some areas. And so you know, that's where, I guess, if they got too over-specific, at a given point, then they end up walling themselves in from a story point of view, and it becomes harder to justify, like, oh, well, now you have to be the only thing. Not, not, that said, I think there are a lot of times they have artificially heightened drama, where maybe more than you needed to. Just say, oh, the nearest ship is two weeks away. It's like, right. Yeah, but you know, you just went to Earth. It took you like a day to get to Earth like two weeks ago. So, how far right, uh, right. They, yeah they they there's there's a lot, kind of a lot of world building that doesn't happen but but i think and you know frankly they've done that in in discovery too i mean part some of the things they got wrong in discovery again on the really there was no need to there was um uh avoiding spoilers i'll just mention things there's a point at which they are referencing they need to get to earth when they are at starbase one And they say that Starbase 1 is 100 AU away, but it's going to take them through a very dangerous tract of space before they finally get to Earth. And this is at the end of the first season. 100 AU is about twice as far away as Pluto. That puts Starbase 1 in this. They're already in our solar system. And if it is deadly dangerous getting from Starbase 1 to Earth, that means the Klingons have conquered Earth. There's like no, yeah. That's, yeah. It was just, it didn't have to be 100 AU. Someone could have just said 12 light years.
1: Well, and and, and then goodness, it, it feel like
0: literally changing like two words, and it would have been correct, and it wouldn't have been wrong. But they, you know, it's like, yeah. But no one, maybe no one reviewed that. So, so little bits like that. But on the other hand. That's going to go, or if you don't know what, what an AU is, then it doesn't mean anything to you. And it just goes off. That just, annoys the, that just annoys the scientists, because we're the only one who knows what it means, and we already know it's wrong. So, it's like...
1: <laughs> right, right. Uh, Oren wants to know uh, your theory on, on the, uh, or your thought on the uh, multiverse theory.
0: There's a, there's a line... From an old Star Trek novel, uh, I think maybe, maybe a James Blish novel. I always that really stuck with me as a kid. It was and it was about I think it was a line from Spock talking about um, uh, 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 sort of abstract philosophical, philosophical concept. And he made the comment, and it probably wasn't a Spock original, but that's where I remembered it. That a difference that makes no difference is no difference. And the I, the multiverse theory is one of several ways that we look at the weirdness that we get when we see the mathematics behind quantum mechanics and we try to say, how does that actually make sense? If if the equation is just the spread of po- probabilities that, you know, it doesn't, that an electron isn't here or here, we say that, you know, the best you can know is that there is a probability uh, a distribution of uh, where it might be. And if you repeat the experiment a bunch of times, it will tell you roughly where you would expect to find it in a statistical, statistically significant number of places. Well, one way of resolving that, like, well, what does that mean if the way, if the science tells you that it's really just a spread of probabilities, one way of resolving that is that means that, well, then maybe that's all real and that we just, at any given moment, only see one reality. But in fact, the math is telling us that all possibilities exist. But it's kind of the counterpoint to something that you've heard of called Schrödinger's cat. Uh, And this is the one like, you know, you put a cat in a box and there's a little bit of poison and a radioactive isotope that has a 50 50 chance of decaying, but it's completely unpredictable because it's quantum mechanical. And until you open the box, then you get the solution says there's a 50% chance it's alive and dead. And so this idea that the until you observe it, it is a superposition of both being alive and dead. And it's only the act of observation that forces it to be one thing or the other uh, collapses. The wave function, I think this is the term that's used for that. And again, that's also a very weird thing, but the reality is both of them are just different ways of us trying to conceptualize just fundamentally the math of quantum mechanics. And so in some sense, neither of them, Potentially, again, depending on what type of multiverse you're talking about, because believe it or not, there's actually a bunch of different kinds of multiverses. But if you're talking about sort of like that quantum, like the wharf re-splits off and you visited all the different quantum universes and, you know, and the Borg are attacking him one something, right? That kind of theory uh, is just a different way of us trying to wrap our brain around a piece of math. That's describing things that occurred a way that is vastly different than the macroscopic scale that our brains are built to be intuitive on. And so in some sense, I think one or the other has to be as true or false as the other because there's really no difference between them when it comes to, you know, the the multiverse versus Schrodinger's cap collapsing wave functions. They can't have any observable differences because they're describing the same mathematics. And so it's more of a like, it's a it's a thought concept and it's fun, but it isn't necessarily telling us something fundamental about the way the universe works. Right. And that is probably the least comprehensible thing I've said all month. <laughs>
1: no, I, no. I mean, honestly, I think it makes I, I, well, I think it makes sense. But, you know, what do I know? I mean, it's, it's well, if you it's get plus
0: me plus tonight. Ken, you get. Well,
1: thank the- you. Thank you very much. I mean, it's basically just explaining, is it not just explaining, gosh, what if I had turned right instead of left? Well, okay, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a way of like, thinking about it where you did. And, <laughs> and, and the question then, I think, that gets people really excited is, okay, well, how do I get to that one? And I'm assuming that that's where we hit our, our metaphorical brick wall. Hey, uh, really quickly, we got about six minutes left. No, we got about seven minutes left. So time enough for one more call if anybody wants to. 669 six, nine, three, three is the phone number to call, 669 six, nine, three, three, Or you can use the one tap from your smartphone and you can hit the stuff on Facebook. Uh, really quickly, I want to remind you about all the other shows that are available to you on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. I don't have them in front of me, so I may miss one. I apologize. Of course, you have Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, uh, The Trek Files, uh, Shabam, which is, which is exciting. And, hey, thank you. Thank you very much because that's my job. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, and of course, daily Star Trek news. It's daily Star Trek news every day. When you wake up in the morning and you think to yourself, what's going on in Star Trek? There's an answer, and it is daily Star Trek news. Uh, you can find each of those shows at their various websites, or of course, there's one place you can get them all uh, podcast.roddenberry.com. Or if you want to get them all, all podcasts.roddenberry.com. It really is up to you. Um, let me. Let me ask you a question. I don't want to put you on the spot, but if there is one thing that's nails, it is inclusion, I think. Uh, it, down to the point of there was somebody recently who I saw online, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was or where it was, but somebody who I believe uh, has a, a prosthetic of some sort. I don't even know what kind of prosthetic it was who said they didn't feel like they had been seen in modern science fiction or modern television really until Kayla Dittmer showed up on the bridge of the enterprise, you know, with half her head now uh, sort of prosthetically enhanced. Um, as you mentioned, they're homosexual characters. I mean, certainly they're people of color. Women are, are in, in positions of power all over that show. Maybe not getting the science right. <laughs> doesn't have to be an either or thing. And if it's going to be an either or thing, um, which do we need more of today, in your opinion?
0: Well, and and let me I'm going to pull to the side on something that you sort of said in passing that not getting the science right. But I would say there are actually different aspects of getting the science right. There's getting the details of the science right. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we push that aside for a second. A more, for me, fundamentally important thing is getting the idea of the process of science right. And that is actually something that they do a very good job of. And getting the enthusiasm of the people who are drawn to this kind of work. Tilly, I mean, she's in, she's in bronze, but she's a, she's a, a silver, silver, uh, wearing person at heart to me, right? She, uh, you know, that's the power of math people. I adore her because she manifests the kind of joy that we, that I, you know, I've experienced when, when like we get a cool result or we see like, oh my God, we have a, we found the system with seven Earth-sized planets in it orbiting a star that's like a little bigger than Jupiter, and we're just like, wow, right? There is joy and engagement and enthusiasm that they absolutely nail with Stamets and they nail with Tilly and they they nail with Burnham. Uh, you know each of them have a very different personality but i really think they've done a splendid job of representing the the uh the qualities that people who are drawn to science can manifest and that i think they do ex- ex- extravagantly well and then to do that at the same time by also being so inclusive and 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 really you know trying to tear down all those walls from you know the original star trek where it's like uh you know rod Berry did the final episode the woman can't be captain because of you know all the he was getting from uh cbs and that's,
1: sorry that's okay. <laughs> uh, right near the end that's fine I, I know where to find it
0: <laughs> yeah uh right so uh, uh that is i think a lot more important than just maybe the nitty-gritty details because you don't need to go to a sci-fi show for your physics lesson uh, but if you can get the inspiration and, and you know, I didn't become a, a physicist because I learned the details of science watching, you know, original Star Trek episodes. I wouldn't be a very good scientist. If that's in fact where I learned my science, but I got the inspiration for that. And I got the joy of that. And generations of people have through various shows. This is something you don't get watching Star Wars, right? There, there, there are many, many franchises that. You don't go and say, wow, I want to go learn about like, like what makes the universe tick that, that kind of enthusiasm, that kind of, joy, it's just not in their character. It's not their world. That's not what they're about. Uh, and there's still plenty of shows where science is the enemy. And, um, uh, I mean, frankly, interstellar, I'm sorry. I'm um, not interstellar at Astra, borderlines on that too. Is is it's just it's it's the problem, not the solution uh, of things, and you know that kind of gets under my skin. Uh, so yeah, uh, i mean they meandered off, but I think somewhere in there, I've I've <laughs> given my angle on what you were asking me.
1: Let me ask you one question, one one last question, because we don't do the lightning round anymore. But I assume this is a question that you get asked enough that you can answer it on the spot. What is the one thing, and it can be a Star Trek movie, which I doubt it's going to be, can be a Star Trek episode, or it can be outside of Star Trek. What's the one uh, popular uh, a bit of, of fiction that you're like, okay, that's like, well-rounded. That's the one. It gets the science. It gets the story. It gets the message. gets all of it. If somebody's got two hours or less, what's the thing that you're like, I, w- I just awesome. want you to watch this?
0: specifically star trek or no, it doesn't have to be or doesn't have to be all of the so um what do you think that's actually a really cool question and it because of the slow plotting way my brain works i'm i'm not going to nail the answer that i should have like like off the top of my head there are um I'll throw out a couple things where I, I'm really impressed with, like, I'm one of the few people who actually thought Interstellar was a really awesome movie. <laughs> and and interestingly, even the science there was not completely right, even though they were working directly with Kip Thorne. But there was a lot of science is the solution as much as it can be the problem. It was it, it had a positivity to it. In fact, in some very weird ways, uh, I would say I actually, the second time I saw the movie, I decided Interstellar was the movie version of Deep Space Nine. Uh, the having to do with making a parallel between the entities outside of time that were influencing the actions of the humans to allow them to discover what they needed to know in order to basically transcend gravity they're i think they're basically the wormhole aliens from ds9 (laughs) Mm.
1: that was (laughs) Um, i'm sorry that was interstellar because that sounds like a rival
0: no that's interstellar it was actually because because the the um but you have to. Watch, it's very detailed. But the idea that the the information that he gets in the course of the movie, it was occurring because some there was an outside intervening force, you know, aliens. But then he says, but it wasn't aliens. It was just us in the future or something. There was somehow or another, it's established. It's supposed to be like our future selves were intervening right. to allow things to occur in a way that, you know, self determination paradox kind of thing. Um.
1: I hate to do this. I hate to do this. If you have a title, I would love for you to throw it out. Otherwise, you and I could obviously do this for a considerable period of time, but we are actually up against the uh, we're up against the clock. Um, Do me a favor, though. Remind, uh, remind everybody once again, if they want to if they want to find you, if they want to see more of what you're doing, uh, the best place for them to go is.
0: Sure. Uh I would actually direct people to our um our website, universeunplugged.org, and there you can see the science videos we do, or you can just uh search for Universe Unplugged on YouTube. You can get to our videos, including the the uh, the the own videos, and we're, we're going to actually get some more of them next year. And um I'm I'm trying to once in a while post to my Twitter and Instagram accounts, but you know, I tend to get like one or two posts a year. But on on uh, Twitter I'm uh at AstroRob and on Instagram I'm at Astro Rob L A.
1: So, okay. Uh, very cool. Well, I know that John was incredibly disappointed that he could not be part of this conversation. So even though he's not here, uh, I'm going to go ahead and invite you back sometime. Because as I say, I could, I could, I could do this for another hour easily. Uh, Doctor Robert Hurt, happy. thank you very much for uh, for being with us tonight.
0: Well, thanks for having me on. I've, we've been uh, wanting to get on and say hi for some time. So yeah, let's let's absolutely do this again. <laughs> And then I'm going to have a better list of Star Trek episodes
1: that nailed it. Ah, That's fine. Well, you've got time because it won't be next week. So uh, you're good. Uh, Mission Log Live is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Technical production on Mission Log Live by Earl Green. Uh, Be sure to visit podcast.roddenberry.com for the latest from the Roddenberry Podcast Network. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, that'd be neat. Patreon.com slash Mission Log Do that. Thank you to everybody who joined us live or later, and we will talk to you next week. Podcast.roddenberry.com,
0: the Roddenberry Podcast Network.